sticking out of the TV to get get it to work for your family? Um, No, I think that was my brother. I was the one who had to stand in front of the TV and change the channels manually oh, until my okay. dad found the, something that he wanted to watch. You were the living remote control. Yes. I was the living remote control <laughs> slash shoehorn that took my dad's boots off as well. <laughs> Which one were you? Um, I was neither of those two. I don't think we had a remote control. I don't remember not having a remote control. Oh, yeah, fancy. I actually heard. Uh, well, you're when, younger than me. When I was in undergrad, uh, there was the um, American College Theater Festival or something like that, ACTF. And uh, when we went to it, there was somebody that was giving a lecture about how two things literally changed the way people's brains are wired. One of them was Sesame Street, and the other was the remote control. And they were talking about it in terms of a context of why uh, younger people were less interested in sitting through something like a Eugene O'Neill play that was like three hours long, but then they could sit through something like Angels in America, which is also three hours long. And what's different about those two? And it had to do with the the fast-changing scenes. And so the argument that this person was making was that the remote control created this ability for people to watch multiple things at once and flip back and forth and fill in the gap. So to actually sit in an hour and a half non-interrupted scene was counterintuitive to the way that some people's brains had started to become wired, which is why you Mm -hmm. see plays like Kushner's being restructured in a different way. And then you also look at Sesame street and what Jim Henson was doing there. And he was basically taking the, um, format of commercials, you know, and applying it to education, you know, so, uh, taking these, you know, this idea that, okay, in 15 seconds, I can concentrate in 15 seconds and get you all the information you need to know that you need to buy this product. And his idea was, okay, if I can do that with a product, can I do that with the number three, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and get it all done in this little 15-second clip. So when you look at Sesame Street, it's clip, 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 and they're all teaching, but they're teaching in these concentrated bursts. And so um I don't know if it's true or not. I'm not a, a brain neurosurgeon psychologist, but I do remember uh in my formative younger years uh having someone give a lecture that uh was talking about that and just a different way that people's brains were operating. That's cool. That's really interesting because I just, I took a couple of screenwriting classes recently and the guy who was teaching them said something that, that similar? Rem- something similar that was, he was talking about the structure of a screenplay and what are considered, you know, perfect screenplays. And there are a couple, I guess, in the industry considered mm-hmm. perfect. They are Back to the Future and <laughs> Casablanca. <laughs> And we looked at we looked at scenes from those and we looked at the screenplay and like as compared to like the scenes that whatever he was talking about, like basic narrative structure of a film and like how to structure it. And that's kind of where, you know, a lot of the art comes into it because you can take something that's like one narrative thread that might last for a couple of hours 
And then you can splice it up and you can switch it around and use it to your advantage or not. And I think he was arguing that the attention span of what it takes to follow a Casablanca all the way through, we don't really have anymore because at a certain point, all of the jump cutting to one from one thing to another in order to sort of accommodate the way that people's attention spans are now structured because of like serialized television mm-hmm. where where because of the ads everything had to be the end of every scene it had to had climax to become to a build, cliffhanger yeah so that you could stay tuned through the ads to see what was going to happen next and i think he was trying to say that that sort of like a ruined long form film but now you have a return to that with subscription services like netflix where now they don't have to worry about those act breaks going into a commercial so you've got Mm -hmm. these these shows that also they don't necessarily always hit a specific time either like sometimes you'll look at some of these shows and one episode will be 45 minutes and then another episode will be 48 minutes and that didn't work on network television because everything was structured and commercial breaks were this uh, commercial breaks were this long so that they could sell this much product and the writers and they had to have it structured that way. The directors mm-hmm. had to cut it that way because like it or not, Procter and Gamble needed their ad to play. Otherwise there was no reason to have the show. Uh, so it's interesting because now you have a reversal of that trend where you're going back to uh, people that are able to sort of be more long form, longer That's form cool. and things, you know, the other, the other thing too is there's the, 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 there's definitely like an attention span issue, but then there's also like another side, which is what, what this person was talking about way back, way back when, um, which it wasn't necessarily even about the attention span so much as about the fact that audiences were hip to what they were watching and they were filling in the blanks. So it was about like, I can watch three shows at once because I know, I know all of the tropes. I know what television is. I've seen so much. So I don't need the whole long form anymore. Instead, I can jump around and I can watch three things at once. That's true. And I can fill in the blanks as I go from show A to show B to show C. And people that their brains weren't working that way were like, please stop changing the channel. (laughs) You know, grandma would be like, would you just leave one thing on? You know, and the kids are like, no, I want to watch like three things at once. Yeah. Uh, And I think also that that sort of jump skill set is less important now as well, because everything also is on Netflix. So I don't need to watch three things at once. I can watch one thing at a time. I don't have three shows airing at the same time that I want to try to watch. And I think that's something else that was different from like the 80s and the 90s. You had to split your You had to focus. split your time, you know, yeah. because at a point, you know, we had VCR so you could VHS one show while you watched another show. But that was like two things, you know, mm-hmm. and like all the good shows would be on at the same time. Right. I you know, know you, when I remember being Thursday little. Thursday nights. Yeah, Thursday nights. And night. I could never watch them because I always had dance rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you'd get like the TV guide at the beginning of the season with all the new shows and you'd like that giant extra thick episode of the TV guy that would come and you'd go through and like circle all the new shows that you wanted to try to watch and everything. And so all of that's gone now and the whole cycle is gone now. Netflix drops a new show when they want to. It could be any time of the year when they drop a new show and you may or may not even know, you know. Yeah. It's true. That has changed things wildly because 
people who are making the content and the audience too. Yeah. Well, a lot of times I feel like watching some of these shows, I feel like I'm watching a long movie. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm watching a eight episode long TV show, but really it just feels like a giant eight hour movie. Mm-hmm. More like a mini series used to be like that was those, oh those big gosh, mini scene, mini, mini series events. Yes. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if that was a draw to a miniseries. It was like more of a commitment than like just a movie on TV, but less of a commitment than a whole series. Well, and they were also like special stories, mm-hmm. you know, like the, I remember the John Ritter Wizard of Oz one. Remember? John and, uh, Ritter Wizard is- He played what? Frank L. Baum, and it was the story of how he came to write The Wizard of Oz. Oh my gosh. And Annette that. O'Toole was his wife in it. And so, um, so it was like these special stories that they could do sometimes as a, as a, as a mini series. Yeah, they were. You know? Do you remember? Oh God, you're probably too young, but there was a mini series of the thorn birds. I don't, I don't know that. The thorn birds. I, I have vague memories of it cause I was a kid in the eighties, but it was very epic. And I think took place in like Australia or something. It was all sweeping and kind yeah. of. Yeah, well, it's, it's not it's, your it's, everyday fare. It's interesting today. Like, I don't know, like, some of these things that we're talking about right now about the way that people's brains sort of were wired in terms of the way that they're consuming media. And, like, today, like, you know, we've got media. There are screen. We're looking at screens all day long, everywhere you go, especially if you live in a place like New York City. I mean, there are screens walking into a subway station that are, like, hanging down as you walk. I mean, everywhere you go, there's screens. And things are being projected at you and information's being projected with you. And now you also are carrying a screen with you at all times. And at uh, least one. At least one. And also that was another thing that I recently read about that TV uh executives um <laughs> that TV executives talk about how um the consumption of a television show is three classifications in their mind when there's a new television show that they're looking to make. They're going for what they want is uh, basically what happens with Game of Thrones, which is the show is so good that everyone stops what they're doing the day that it airs and sits down and turns it on and watches it that day. So that's like, that's, that's the watches the whole series. You mean like the whole, no, like, like Game of Thrones, they play a new episode on Sunday night. Right. Okay. So you mean people keeping up with it as it like, airs, like the old, like school the old days, days where okay. it's like it's Sunday night. I don't care what's going on. I'm going to stop what I'm doing, come home, sit, and watch this show. That's the holy grail of television. Like you want to make shows that can do that. That's the most successful you can do. The second is basically just like being interested enough that you're willing to consume it when you have extra time, but that you're willing to, when you're consuming it, actually pay attention. And that kind of consumption is happening like while you're standing in line at the grocery store and there's like a long line and you pull out your phone and you watch like a couple minutes of a show. But your focus is like into the show when you actually turn it on. And then there's the third level, which is that you just kind of have it in the background and you're not really watching it. But it's like background filler in your life and you're very mildly absorbing the show, but not really. And I guess then there's the fourth, which is not watching it at all. (laughs) So those are the four sort of modes that of consumption of a television show, you know, which is very different from the the history of television. I'm a huge television history buff. uh, And, uh, you know, you go to the history of television and it 
when it starts, it's all the first. It's all appointment television. It's all every every show. People are yeah, sitting you have to down be there to or watch. You miss it. You know, and it was important that you watched it so that you could talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's something that carried through. You know, through Seinfeld and Friends and that era of television in the '90s, and uh, and and the the birth of reality television as well, I think was appointment television still too, you know, those early seasons seasons of Survivor, you know, people were making sure that they watched it so they could talk about who got voted off the island. That's true. You know, it was a big deal. Oh, you're right. It was a real big deal. I remember I was in, I don't know, I was a young adult, very young adult back then. And I remember feeling like, oh my God, I don't even want to, but I have to watch this show. Because everyone's talking about it and yeah. I have no idea what they're talking about. And, you know, and, and I'm very opinionated. And if I don't have an opinion <laughs> on this, I feel like I'm missing out. So I'm going to watch it to see what the fuck everybody's talking about. And then that's how I watched the first season of Survivor. Yeah. And so here's the thing. Survivor was how long ago? I've not thought oh about. Oh my God. It was like 20 years ago. I've not thought about that show ever. I remember the guy's name, Robert Hatch. The first asshole that yeah. everybody liked. Was that, wait, was he the jerk? Yeah, I think he won. Or Did I don't, he win? I don't remember. I think he won. Um, but I, I mean, how do I remember his name? Like 20 years. I've, I've never thought. I haven't thought about that till sitting here right now. I haven't thought of his name, but it's burned into my brain. But I'm brain pretty sure he's the far. reason I started watching because I heard everyone talking about this one dude, this yeah. like dude. And, and then I was like, oh God, what guy? So <laughs> I watched it and then I got sucked in. Yeah. But only to like the first season. Which, so I don't know if, have I talked to you about, um, celebrity in America because that's something that fascinates me as well. The entire concept of it? And how it's morphed. The 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 stages of celebrity in America. And I I mean there's lots of Oh, you mean like how people used to be stars and kind of in a unapproachable on a pedestal yeah, and we, now we it's talked like about that the once, star right? is like, oh, this is how I wiped my ass today. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, so there's that idea like you go way you, you you know, I mean you can take celebrity, you know, back to Alexander the Great if you want, but I mean I'm talking about an American context, and I'm going to make the starting point for this little mini conversation, uh, the golden age of Hollywood, right? So right. that's when, you know, studios are taking a person, they're taking Marilyn Monroe, and they're creating a product. And they're well, taking they didn't this... even take Marilyn Monroe. They took Norma Jean exactly. or they took, whatever her name Exactly. Was. They took Norma Jean, and they made her Marilyn Monroe. That's yeah. Exa- and then, yeah, that's, the it's even her package. name, right? The hair color, um, the makeup, the clothes, everything. The and this is across life. the board. This is everybody. That's why, why you also have, like, Rock Hudson, who had to completely hide his sexuality mm-hmm. because that was not part of the, the product. Carrie right? Grant, same thing. Exactly. So what you've got in this age is there's all of this careful craft going into creating the celebrity. And the goal was to create somebody that is above Mm -hmm. reproach, above being a regular person. They're beyond They're 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 only attainable to you when you buy the poster and put it on your wall. That's as close as you can get to that person. They're in the heavens. You have to look up to see them. Exactly. You know, there's no like, I'm going to sit down and have a conversation with this person. They're not real people. You know, and I think that then somewhere along the lines, and I'm I'm gonna just pull it out and say, you know, we'll say like Tom Hanks, right? So what Tom Hanks did, and and the actors around that era was they started to manipulate this sort of level of celebrity that was beyond being a regular person, and they were like, I'm a celebrity because I'm a regular person, right? Like Tom Hanks was you in a movie, 
Okay. Like he's every man, he's like the every man American, mm-hmm. right? All American guy. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. Marlon Brando was the all American guy of that era, but he was still in the beyond approach. He was still, he was still like an ideal. He was like a monument mm-hmm. or like a statue. Like he was still above that. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tom Hanks was like, and people of the, and a lot of people around that time period too, was like, that was the start of like, oh, if I saw him in a bar, I'd actually say hi to him. Yeah. Like, I'd sit down and have a drink with him. Like, we'd be buddies. So, like, 80s Tom Hanks. Yeah. Like, early to mid 80s. 80s, 90s. Yeah. Okay. Um, And so, what happens is we start to shift from this idea of what I see on the poster is so big that, like. It's funny that you just said big. (laughs) (laughs) What what I see on the poster is so much bigger than real. Like, I'm not that. I'm a regular person. That's not. And then we start to see, like, these celebrities that are like, oh, well, that's, that could be me. I'm like that guy. Right. And then this reality TV movement happens in the late 90s, early 2000s, where I could literally be picked by a TV person. I don't have to be an actor or an artist or a musician or a politician or any of the things that made you a celebrity before. I can just be me and get put on an island and get to become a celebrity. You know, but now you still needed the TV executive to do it. And that's where we're different today, because today we have our own studio in our phone and it's Instagram and it's Facebook and it's our own channel that we get to curate however we want. And we need no executive to tell us how to do it. And so celebrity now is completely different. It's I'm a celebrity. You're a celebrity. We're all just celebrities by the very fact that uh, we have a phone that has an Instagram account. And if I put you know, the effort into it and do what I need to do. I can curate for myself a following of 50,000 people or more. I mean, these, some people have just insane amounts of followers and they are now a celebrity. And so the focus is less on, oh, I want to be Marilyn Monroe and more, I am a celebrity and I want other people to become me. That's slightly terrifying as well, in a way. But it's a very different societal mindset that we live in, in terms of our relationship to celebrity. And I'm, I'm just making this up right now. This is not from like something that I've read or anything. This is just me pontificating, if you will. Okay. So here's another weird kind of spiral off of that whole, like that everyone is now a celebrity in their own world and it's kind of all mixed together and celebrities are real people and real people are celebrities but now we're having a weird thing happen where a little bit of this like some celebrities are spiraling off into normal people reality because they're getting kicked off being a celebrity for saying real people things what they think is a real person they're getting like shoved out of like Roseanne perfect example Mm -hmm. of like Here's somebody who is famous and literally has a job that is saying ridiculous things. Want to step too far in whatever directions, um, not the least of which had to do with the fact that she was taking drugs that make... Let me just insert here that the craziest stories I've heard that make the least amount of sense about any drugs that people have been on has been from normal, everyday, non-drug addicted people taking Ambien. Mm-hmm. weirdest shit I've ever heard from real people like my sister and like the dude down the street who like are just normal people had a prescription for Ambien and then started acting yeah 
in ways that are well, like and, horror film and, type shit. And you know, shit. The, the thing is, is when I was talking about the other, the other celebrities that were on a poster only. Oh yeah, totally they, different. All of these things were happening with them too. But they were like, there was teams of people that the studios had that were like blocking Paid it. to not. You know, and that's why know. you had, you know, Rock Hudson in the closet, you know, because that was blocked out of view. Whereas now, you know, like you said, like we take our phones into the bathroom with us that, to show yeah, us doing every, every, every moment of our Wagner life. Wagner still isn't in prison for murdering his <laughs> wife. Yeah. And that, so I think that that's the interesting thing too, is that there's the relationship with celebrity, but then there's also the relationship with privacy. And, you know, we've got, we've gone this, this swing from an America that a hundred years ago, privacy was so important to everyone. Like you did not want somebody knowing your business. And now, you, you know, we're, we just put it all out there, broadcast every moment of our lives every aspect of our lives, every emotion we're having, we broadcast it all out. And, you know, it's, it's, it's connected to the idea of connectedness. It's, it's this idea that if I go on Facebook, if I go on Instagram I, and I um, put all of these moments of my life out there, that's me connecting with everyone around me. And that's, that's keeping me from feeling alone and being alone, you know, but it's not. <laughs> that's that's the yeah, well, that's the undercurrent not, of it. It's not just. I mean, it could work in that way and I think does in some respects for some people in some fashions, but yeah. but not necessarily in And it well, and absolutely like it it absolutely can create connections. Uh you make I mean, I've made friends that I met first on Instagram and things like that, you know. Um and so I I definitely don't want to sound like I'm, you know, poo-pooing all social media or anything like that. Uh, it's just kind of where this conversation flowed in terms of celebrity and yeah. uh, privacy and whatnot. But it's but, all true. But I do think that that privacy issue is going to swing back around. You mean to people wanting privacy yeah. again? Well, they already do. Yeah. I mean, I just deleted my Facebook account like <laughs> two days ago because I, you know, found that I was only for years. I found that I was only using it for work and. Finding places to live. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, you also like lose track of what you're putting out there. You know, like there's people that I haven't seen for a while. I've been on a big health kick, you know, lost 30 pounds, been focused on like weightlifting and things like that. You know, and there's people that I haven't seen in a while that I kind of forget that I'm connected to with social media. And then I see them and they're like talking about what I've been doing at the gym and I forget, I'm like, Oh, that's cause I'm putting it all out there, mm. you know? And it's, it gives me a moment of pause of like, okay. Now I'm careful about the things that I post. I think about everything and I, I put it through that lens of like, do I want somebody to see that? So it's not like anything that I posted, I'm like ashamed of, or, you know, thinking, oh, I wish I hadn't posted that. It's more just a, oh my God, I forgot how many people are following me because they don't all press the little like button, you know? So but that I, doesn't mean they don't, that doesn't mean they don't see they're it. They're not aware of it. And they aren't aware of it and they aren't clocking it. And that was... That's some sometimes, yeah, something that I like, oh, you know. Have you ever had this experience where you're somewhere in public and, you know, if you're in the entertainment industries at all, like, there's a lot of shit you go to and there's a lot of people at them and you know a lot of those people and a lot of those people you know through other people. Have you ever walked into a situation where you thought you knew someone but you 
had never met them. It's just because you've seen them on Facebook. Through no, somebody that else. hasn't happened to That's me. That's happened yet. to me, and it was weird. Yeah, and just like a like you here thought I that am you'd... about to walk up to this person and start talking to them, and actually I had to pull myself back and be like, "Or you don't know them. You don't really know them. You've I just have... seen their face." No, I have met people, but I didn't have like a feeling that I had known them it still felt like i only have seen them on social media it's a little weird well i i had to take a moment to be like wait how do i know this person what is the context here because you don't like i mean necessarily. Well, and, it's not always the same yeah what's hard too is that like what we're doing with our social media is we're it's like a movie trailer you know we're just showing the best parts well, or I- the worst parts for that reason as well. We're curating what moments, that's it, but you know. You, that's the interesting thing, Michael, though, is like, I think a lot of people go into it thinking, oh, I just put everything on here. But like, I don't think a lot of people are doing that. I think yeah. there are so many different possibilities of how to curate your life for people. And a lot of the gray areas come into that. Like, we all don't do it the same way. Like, mm-hmm. I don't do it the same way as anyone else and a lot of other people don't and i've found myself in challenging situations where i the way that i curate my information comes up against other people's desire for either things to be simple or things to be pleasant looking on the surface or things to be black and white or easily labeled and my stuff doesn't always fall into line with that and so i'm not one of those people who is like, I'm here to like curate this image of myself. That's all the good things. Like that's not what interests me ever Mm -hmm. in life. I mean, I think if anyone's friends with me, they pretty much know that I'm like (laughs) kind of a crusader for like whatever it is that's important to me in the moment. And, and so it's usually stuff that I feel like we need to like address and, and shit that I've been through and that I know other people have struggled with that I want to say, Hey, let's, try to help us all through these challenging bits and like in different ways. And part of my way is like laughing at stuff. My sense of humor is not for the, yeah. you know, easily offended whatsoever. And that in one way has helped me survive a lot of the shit I've gone through in my life. And it's helped a lot of other people be able to laugh at circumstances that would, you know, otherwise be challenging, not in necessarily in a self-deprecating way sometimes, but more so now in a way where I'm like, no, everyone who like experienced something horrible needs to be able to laugh at it if they want to. <laughs> and so let's laugh at that. But let's also change the circumstances that make this a part of our daily lives where we have to laugh our way out yeah. of some terrible shit. But, you, but you're getting into what you're getting into is something kind of interesting, which is that. So we each are the curators of our own material. But we don't have control over the interpretation of what we put out there. Very true. And that's where there's a lot of times when you, you know, I, I find that I meet somebody in real life that I've followed or, or, or gotten to know via a social media vehicle. And the real person doesn't match up with what my interpretation has been. Uh-huh. And that doesn't mean that they were being deceptive as curators. They were putting out you know, some uh, parts of them that was truthful, but I was then interpreting it a certain way. And, uh, I find that the flip side happens for me sometimes is that I, I tend to be somebody that I look for my social media to hopefully be, uh, inspiring and lifting to people. So I don't use it, uh, for things like political activism and things like that. I have no problem when people choose that that's how they like to use their social media. 
I, I believe everybody's page is their page to use the way that they choose to use it. Uh, whatever or account or whatever type of social media you're, mm-hmm. you're talking their about. Their voice. Their voice. Exactly. It's your voice. It's your platform to use who, how you want to use it. And uh, likewise, you know, I, I, I've kind of had some people sort of like, oh, you don't ever talk about, you know, politics or the president or this or that when on your stuff. And I, and I, I did for a little bit. She can't imagine why you <laughs> wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> and I did for a little bit during the elections and all, all the 2016 election. I did a little bit. Um, and it, to me, it was not finding me a sense of fulfillment. It was not improving my connections. For me, it was making me feel like all I was doing was narrowing down my audience to people who agreed with what I was saying. And then it just felt like an echo chamber. And I was like, okay, I don't want, that's not what I want to do with this. Uh, For some people, that is what they want to do. And I don't have any qualms with people doing that, but it doesn't attract me uh, in terms of that form of curating, Mm -hmm. you know, who you are and what your voice is, you know? So what I try to do is put things through that prism, that lens of like, I'm trying to live the best life, the healthiest life that I can. And I'm hoping that that I can, in sharing some of those small victories that happen sometimes that that can help lift other people that are struggling and are maybe having a bad day. Cause there's bad days when I don't post a thing and I just like feel horrible. And I'm just like, today's just a dull, boring day. And I don't want to post anything. I'm not smiling. I'm not happy, you know? Um, but like recently I broke my arm, I broke my hand and I broke my arm doing photography, just street photography during the women's March, uh, in New York city. Uh, and, um, yeah, I was not participating in the March. Thank you for your service, Michael. (laughs) I wasn't even participating in the March outside of taking photos. I was just kind of sitting and observing and, uh, got pushed around by the crowds and, uh, ended up falling like seven feet and broke my hand. Seven feet from what were you standing on? I was sitting on a ledge. And the crowds got so big that I couldn't get down. And when I tried to get down, I slipped and fell backwards. And I fell kind of like down into like the sort of sub entrance of a building by Central Park West. And there were some wonderful people there that helped me get out. (laughs) And then, and I, and then I went and go, went and met my friend, Jonathan Hicks, who I was meeting up with for lunch. And I didn't think that I broke anything. So I went and got tacos with him uh, and just had lunch. And then after that, I got home and like looked at my hand. I was like, this looks pretty bad. So I went to the doctor and sure enough, I had broken it. So I went into a cast and went and had surgery and had to rehab and go through all of that. What kind of surgery would they do? Uh, So I what happened was my fifth metacarpal mm-hmm. uh, completely shattered. Uh, it was four large pieces and an uncountable number of tiny pieces. Oh, so what they did was they put two pins in my hand that connected the largest pieces together mm-hmm. and held them in place. And the pins stayed in for, um, I think, about five weeks, something like that. I forget now the timeline. I was in a cast, I think, for maybe five weeks. I forget, five or six weeks. And then I had another like six weeks of solid rehab, which those people are amazing at what they do. Uh, Cause when you just like hurt to pick up anything with your hand and they help you get better, you're, they're your favorite people on the, on the planet, you know? And then, you know, coming out of that sort of uh, one of the other things that happened was I kind of just coped with the pain of breaking my hand with eating. Uh, and yeah. like you do, I would, you know, just eat an entire pizza one day, you know? If I want a chicken tikka masala for lunch and dinner, I did it, (laughs) whatever I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I, I did not, uh, I've never 
had a major weight problem in my life. I've never um, really struggled with it, but I definitely, as when the cast came off and I couldn't do any exercise, I couldn't do any exercise um, when the pins were in my hand, pretty much no cardio, mm-hmm. no anything until they came out. And so when that uh, cast came off and the pins came out of my hand and I looked in the mirror and I had gained like 30 pounds. You like, gained 30 pounds in I, six weeks? Well, I don't know if I gained it in six weeks, oh. but um, I was definitely 30 pounds away from where I wanted to be okay. that day when I looked in the mirror and was like, okay. You know, so I'm sure I had a, I'm sure I had a few too many beers and burgers along the way before then as well. Uh, yeah, I went to graduate school when I, uh, 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that I worked as a bartender. I worked as a waiter. I had well, very cardio that, wait, 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 wait. heavy jobs, but you know? Also, let me point out your diet before that point. Well, it was terrible. You, I knew terrible. you as the guy who for pretty much every meal I saw you eat, it was like fast food, like Wendy's, yeah. Burger King, sodas, mm-hmm. like all Because I was working stuff. a job where and I burned 2,000 calories you were, a You were shift. young and you were in shape and you could get yeah. away with it. I was wondering, like, I really wanted to talk about this because I have been wondering, like, I walk into your apartment now and I'm like, this guy has totally transformed. Like, what <laughs> the fuck? You not only, like, okay, I, I generally detest when people generalize about um the type of person you are but like it does stand to reason that there are certain things in a person's apartment you can tell a lot about their lifestyle Uh um when you look at them and so whereas before you were the guy who was like fast food all the time sodas and just you know it was your apartment before like years ago whatever 10 years ago was a little college dormy like you're just like a dude like who just (laughs) like ate dude things and had dude shit around and now what is it now? I'm looking around. We're, we're in my apartment recording this it, podcast. It smells lovely. There's an extensive, extensive essential oils this is true. collection around. There's like your kitchen has actual ingredients, like natural ingredients, like from the earth and mm. stuff. Um, there's no plastic, very little plastic in your apartment. There's, you know, you have glass containers to drink out of and, and store your food in and have your essential oil cleaning products in <laughs> and you seem really you will not seem you are you're genuinely concerned about your diet your lifestyle taking care of your body and i just wondered when did that happen and i can't imagine it was all at once but like how did that transformation happen well so you know i i went to graduate school and i went to graduate school to get an mfa in acting directing and um i want to preface if we're about to go there so, so just what I would say as a preface to any talk about my experience in graduate school is uh, that there is good and that there is bad to every experience that we have in life. And also that I personally want to own my experience and I don't want anything that I say to be blame or like, oh, my professors did this or that, or my classmates did this or that, you know, cause I think that it's often easy to slip into that sort of um, a place. You know, for me going to graduate school, it was, you know, 2010, we were in the middle of the great recession. Right. And, um, you know, if you were in New York at the time, we had just pretty much lost the entire television market. And that was really why I came to New York. I really wanted to work in the soap operas. I really wanted to do that. And I kind of found myself doing some theater acting, uh, mainly because like, that's what you have access to. Right. When you're a young actor, you have access to theater way more than anything else. And so that's what you do. Um, 
but I didn't love it nearly as much as I, I love television. Like I talked about before, you know, I'm a television junkie and I, I've just, I grew up loving television. Three camera sitcoms was my favorite thing on the planet. Shows like Cheers and Frasier and like those kinds of things. So living in New York during the recession, you know, you saw the theater market shrink, 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 shrink. You've seen the pay for actors going down, 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 down ever since the writer's strike around 2000, um, which was before I was out of undergrad. But, um, you know, today we're still seeing the effects of things that happened in 2000 from that strike. And you saw all of these shows going away. You saw all of the soaps getting taken away. You know, we were down to like a, a, a small handful of shows. Netflix hadn't started doing things yet. And so a lot of people that I was meeting, casting directors and agents and whatnot, were like, now's a great time if you're thinking about going to graduate school to do it. And it's something that I always wanted to do. Ever since I was 18 years old, I went and saw a production of All My Sons at the Old Globe in San Diego. A bunch of the graduate students were in it. It was during the summer, and they were amazing. And I talked to them afterwards, and they talked about being a graduate school actor. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And it was something that I always wanted for myself. And I was in, in you know, still in my undergrad at the time, but it was something that I definitely was like, I, I want that someday. And I probably built up the idea of grad school. I probably overhyped it for myself too. I mean, I think we all have a tendency to do that in life. You know, we have this thing that we want to do and we put it on a pedestal. And so before, you know, even going in, I had in my head that this was going to be this amazing, amazing, like experience of a lifetime. And uh, I probably would already set myself up for some disappointment <laughs> before I even walked on campus. Well, that's usually how it happens. Exactly. Great expectations. Uh, but in my head, when I started graduate school, it was, and I kept saying this, I said, this is me doubling down on my career as an actor. This is me recommitting and saying that there's nothing else I want to do. This is what I, this is, this is my jam and this is what I'm going to do. Um, yeah, I think that's how a lot of us felt about yeah. it. Yeah. And by the end of grad school, it was like, oh, <laughs> I, I not only don't know if I like the acting business or being an artist, you know, at this point, I don't even feel like I like myself. And I left that experience broken, but I shoved it all down, you know, like you do. Well, you're supposed to. You're not supposed yeah. to have any real feelings. I shoved it all down. And uh, anything that bothered me, anything that probably I could have just talked about and made like, life easier oh for myself and everyone around me, but I didn't because that's what we do. So I shoved all of this shit down. And, uh, and I got out of school and I had a couple of jobs that flowed right out of school that were, you know, some of them were even connected to my graduate school experience. And I went and did that. I worked on Martha's Vineyard. I worked in Florida. And I will say that uh, I did a play called Fly for Ricardo Khan in Florida at Florida Studio Theater. And that was a highlight of my career as an actor, for sure. Because I met these actual Tuskegee Airmen. I met these uh, families uh, of these uh airmen and it was amazing and i went to tuskegee and i went to the museum and i stood on the airfield and that was all connected to this experience and i you know you i met people who came and saw the show who had never seen a play in their life mm. and were like i never thought this was for me i I'd never want to leave you know it was amazing and then nothing really happened after that for me as an actor it kind of just like sort of that was that came to an end and then like nothing else really kind of happened and 
uh, I developed what I do now, which is uh, audiobook narration, mm-hmm. which is to me an offshoot of acting. It's using acting, but it's really part of the publishing industry, and it's really part of making books. It's a, it's a, it's a different thing. It is in the family of being an actor, but it's not the same thing as what I went to grad yeah, school for. It's its own job, which it's I, its I try thing. to explain that too to people about background work. How like, okay, it's, it's an offshoot. It's, it's its own job. It's its own skill set. So when I was whew, little guy, I don't oh, know what age. Oh, you're a little guy. A little guy. Um, I remember, you know, watching shows like ER and, and whatnot and setting a goal for myself. I had my book that was like, what to expect when you move to LA or New York. It was that yellow book. Remember that book? That- yeah. The eight, like, <laughs> yes, I think I had that for LA. The actor's handbook to move to LA. Sure. And then there was one for New York that I think was sure. blue or something. Um, and at that point I set this goal for myself that I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to act on a primetime TV show. And I hadn't done it before graduate school, which was okay. I hadn't quite figured out the game yet. I hadn't figured out how to even get in front of the right people yet. Well, that's the entire Um, game. Right. Well, no, once you get in front of them, that's just part one of the game. Um, So going to graduate school, coming out of graduate school, I was so focused about, about that goal. Like that was, I was going to achieve, this was a life, major, major life goal that I had set for myself. And I had made these huge accomplishments in my twenties that I hadn't really like planned on. Like you were with us when you were part of our our team that went to Italy. We, we took 15 people to Italy and performed Shakespeare in an olive grove. I mean, like I I never could have even, I never could have even made up that goal or dream. No, I know that was ridiculous. (laughs) fucking bunch of lucky bastards we were to just get that as an experience like, exactly do shakespeare in an olive grove and for listeners Tuscany. who don't know this was a company we we started called hyperion theater uh project or hyperion theater company because we changed the name halfway through uh it was something we started off doing commedia dell'arte a family member of mine had pulmonary fibrosis when we were doing that very first show which was around 2006 ish 2006, 2007. And so I said to the actors, it was six actors in the show, including myself. And I said, Hey, what if we just donated all the ticket sales to the pulmonary fibrosis foundation? Cause at the time we were, we weren't even Hyperion yet. We were just, we were called the not, what were we called? It was a takeoff of like the Saturday night, the original Saturday night live. It was uh-huh. like the, the not quite ready to quit waiting tables players or something like okay, that. I think I vaguely remember that performed it at Gotham comedy club mm-hmm. where we all worked. And, uh, and so we were trying to like riff off of that a little bit, you know? And so one, when that show, we were hoping to get 20 people to, and we ended up getting about 85. So we blew our expectations out of the water and everybody was like, what's next? So we planned the next Commedia show. And that one, we got around 150 people. I at. think that was the first thing I saw of you guys. Cause I remember that you donated the proceeds to that the charity, for, but I didn't realize why. So yeah. So the, that was for the Jack. Uh, the Jake Pastel Cancer Fund, who was uh, the brother of a friend who had terminal brain cancer, and uh, he has since passed away. But for uh, a year and a half, we pretty much worked uh, exclusively with his foundation, just trying to help him out. And then that became kind of the standard was uh, we said, okay, every time we do something, we're going to create some type of a fundraiser connected to it. Uh, obviously, we couldn't always give all of the ticket money away. 
uh, that just is not a sustainable business model because <laughs> I'm not independently wealthy. But um, what we did was we found r- ways to do raffles and other things. Um, and that just kept building and growing and got the attention of the producers in Italy that were like, wow, this is really interesting. Would you like to come here and work with Emergency, which is a foundation that builds hospitals in places in the world that don't have access to proper medical, medical care and do a Shakespeare play? And that's how that happened. You know, so it all just one thing led to another and grew to another thing. I could not when I just wanted to get six people together, make some masks and do a funny show. I could never have imagined that it was going to go from that to what it went to mm-hmm. over the course of the years. You know, eventually I, I, I didn't end Hyperion, but we put it to sleep is what I say. <laughs> like if we wanted to revive it, we could, everything's there to revive it, but it's, it's, it's gone to rest. And, um, when I put it to rest, I added everything up. And over the years, all of the amazing people that worked with us, uh, the, the, I mean, hundreds of actors and producers worked with us over those years, making comedy shows and burlesque shows. And drivers. All, and drivers. <laughs> give a shout out to the drivers, especially in Rome. Um, it was very dangerous. Yeah. So all of these people that were a part of that company, hundreds of people were a part of that company. And uh, over the years, we raised over $12,000, uh, uh, 12, $12,000 for different types of charities, organizations. So that was all the work of all of these people and the audiences. And it was amazing, you know, and that was, that was pretty much took me right up to going into grad school. Mm -hmm. And then I went to grad school and was like, oh, okay, this is different. And they didn't tell you when you came out that your industry would not exist anymore, Michael. No, that, that was not something we discussed. Yeah. that, Um, That one's always fun. So, you know, I, one of the things was I really didn't want to go to a graduate program that was like, focused on we're going to tear you apart and build you back up. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know if that program even exists uh, because I discussed that with the faculty and they were like, Oh, we don't do that. We don't do that here. And um, they, they do that there. I think they do that everywhere. Um, and it was, it was very hard because it wasn't what I wanted, but it happened anyway. And I was there and I was in it. And I chose not to leave grad school because I was also getting a lot of good stuff too. And so, you know, there's the, the yin and the yang to the experience. Um, so, but there was a lot of things, uh, a lot of feelings that I had and a lot of things that I just, you know, kind of, I, I, I went into a mode of just like, well, I'm going to get through this experience. I'm going to relish the days that I love and the things that I love that are happening. And I'm going to get through the, the days that I don't love. And that kind of became something that I started to do in life. Once I was out of grad school, I continued this thing that I created for myself in terms of, and I think it's, again, this is not even something that's like, oh, the faculty did this or that. I think it's something that's just a product of doing something hard. Grad school is hard. Any grad program is hard, no matter what you're going into yeah, school for. Yeah, it should be. Um, and uh, this mod- modus uh, operandi of like, okay, you know, I just need to get through today's class and then I need to get through this week's classes and get this paper done and then get this semester done. And then uh, it's built into our society. That's what we do. We, yeah. we just cope. Yeah. We do stuff to cope with the hurdles that we're constantly leaping over and they don't stop. So that became a mode of life mm-hmm. rather than like a part of getting a graduate degree. It became this is now how I live my life. Mm-hmm. Every day became, I'm just trying to get through today. Mm-hmm. Even when there was no reason for me to think that way. 
You know, it became like, okay, this audiobook, I just need to get through this chapter. I need to get that. Everything became a checklist of like, you know, how many chapters do I need to do? And I check them off, check them off, rather than just being present and being in the moment, which, you know, was something that they really wanted to, to work on in graduate school too, which is ironic. In theory. You know, in theory, but I, I will say like one, one professor in particular, really being present was her thing, you know, and um, it's, it was my takeaway from her, but I wasn't living it. Like I, I listened to it intellectually, but I didn't make it an internal part of my life. And um, I think it takes practice. Yeah. And I just wasn't even trying mm. to practice presence at all. So, you know, I finished, I did that job in Florida and then I really kind of came back to New York, just sort of was in New York since that job. Uh, grinding away, building this business that I have that I love doing audiobooks. I love connecting with authors and listeners. Uh, it's really incredibly gr- uh, satisfying. Uh, and they're, they're just so gracious. The, everyone is part of the communities uh, that I am in as a narrator are just incredible, wonderful, gracious people. And, um, and, I, and I should say that like, the sort of checklist mentality doesn't mean that you're not doing good work when you're in that mode. Mm-hmm. It just means it's, 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 a, it's a way of thinking. It's not like you're like, oh, I just want to get through this chapter. Yeah. I don't want to read it. It's not that. It's, no, it's just that you know, it's a perpetual like, oh, it's never good enough. It's kind of on yeah, to the next thing always. Exactly. So I don't feel like the result is, oh, I'm putting out bad books or whatever it is that I'm working on mm-hmm. at the time. It's just the internal. It's how you feel about the work you're doing, not necessarily the quality of the right. work that you're doing. And um. And a funny thing that I've learned, I never hurt myself significantly before in my life. I never broke anything, never had a surgery. Uh, The funny thing I learned about breaking something and having extreme physical pain in your body is that it unleashes a lot of emotional pain, that you put a wall up and hit everything behind. And all of the sudden, you know, as I came out of the experience of this busted hand and I started to, um, find myself on the flip side of that. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm I'm not liking who I see. And you know, I I think that it made me realize that I I never was somebody who looked in the mirror and hated who I saw reflected back, but I also never really liked who I saw reflected back. And it really bothered me. And I started to think about all of these experiences, the graduate experiences and everything, the way that I was living my life at the time, uh, I was a little bit more weight than I needed to have, you know, uh, a friend of mine, the whole essential oil thing is because a friend of mine was talking about just all of the benefits to, to your life. And it, it is something that's a little bit more of an expensive thing in life to have, you know, that type of thing going on in your life. Uh, but I was, I felt like I wanted to make that investment on that side of things. Uh, and it's, it's helped me, you know, uh, it's helped me feel better and calmer and pe- more peaceful and, and whatnot. But the biggest thing really was, you know, seeing, seeing in the mirror and saying, okay, uh, I have to be real about my choices. You know, uh, I have to be real about the fact that I'm sitting here drinking four or five cans of Coke a day. And every time I go out to eat fast food and, uh, pizza and all this, this is what I'm putting in my body. It all kind of started to weave together. I, I had to be real about the fact that like, 
I hadn't really been going to the gym. I'd been going to the gym, but I wasn't going to the gym. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was exercising, but I wasn't really exercising, you know, and I didn't have a mindset for it. I didn't have a plan for it. I wasn't really, I wasn't really doing it. I was just like, it was in the, it was like in the background, you know, and going through the motions, going through the motions, checklist. Mm. I went to the gym today. I did like 10 minutes of cardio check. Didn't matter if the cardio was good. Didn't matter like what I was actually doing during that time. Didn't matter where my mind was or where my heart or my soul was during that. It just mattered that I did it. So Jesus. Yeah. That's you harrowing. So, you mean we're supposed to think about all that stuff too? Oh my God. <laughs> so uh, that day was March 3rd. I know the day. This year, March 3rd? <laughs> it was March 3rd oh was the day that, that, that I looked in the mirror and was like, I don't like what I see. And I decided to throw away anything gross and junky in my fridge. And I did. And I, that's March 3rd was the last time that I had a Coca-Cola or any type of sugary drink of any kind. And I just started a process. And I, one of the big things that I said was, okay, I didn't find myself delivered to this place overnight. So I'm not going to expect that I'm going to get out of this place mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all these different ways overnight. I, I'm not going to expect that I'm going to go to the gym for a week and have abs that are visible. <laughs> you probably did though, you asked. No, I, I'm still like trying to get there. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> um, but you have to be realistic. You, you want to set these goals. You want to set a goal like, okay, I'm going to lose this much weight by this time. But you can't hang your success on that goal. You hang your success on the, the, the little daily victory of, I, it was hard and I wanted to stop the treadmill at 10 minutes. And I said, no, I'm going to get to 15 today. Because that's how you eventually get to doing a half hour and you're not even blinking an eye. It's that victory, which is so much more important than a number on a scale uh, can ever be because the number right. on the scale is going to, it's going to change. It's going over time. It will, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you start eating cleanly and if you start living an active life, as Anthony Bourdain said, move, if you're doing that, the number's going to move you without a doubt, that number's going to move. The success of how fast the number moves is irrelevant because you're not making a change that's only going to last for three months. If you're serious about this, you're making a change for the rest of your life. Mm. And that's why the concept of diet, diet, it means nothing. Stop with dieting. It's not dieting. It's what you eat mm. every day for the rest lifestyle. of your life. So it's not about like, oh, well, I'm going to give up my Mountain Dew for three months. No, you, you're going to get rid of it for, for good. You know, if you're trying to like move your life in that direction. And at the same time, it's also really important that there is that sense of balance, that you're enjoying life, that you're living life, because otherwise, what's the point? So exactly. I, I would never tell anybody, like, don't ever have ice cream or chocolate cake or whatever. Right. It is. There's things that you love in life. If you love Mountain Dew, by all means, drink Mountain Dew some of the time. But you don't need to have it be your version of water. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's the thing that I look back at a, a big chunk of my life and... 
I go, oh my God, like Coca-Cola was my water. It was mm-hmm. all I drank. I know. I don't think I ever saw you drink water. No, I didn't. Water was boring, <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh, it's great. So it's all this stuff that, you know, everybody talks about, like the I'm living my best life and all that stuff. But there's, it, it is something that you, you have to like decide, like, is this, is this what I want to do? And if it is like, I'll also say that change, you need to go at it uh, gradually. You don't, don't feel like, okay, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and everything is going to be changed. You know, choose what, where I was at for two weeks was getting rid of sugary drinks. I, and I was like, everything else, I, whatever happens, happens. And I ended up eating a lot cleaner right from the get-go, but at the same time, I wasn't where I'm at now. And I, I didn't care about that because mm. the victory at that time was I'm getting rid of sugary drinks and I'm going to teach myself and teach myself to not only get rid of Coca-Cola, but to not substitute it with something else, which is what you do at first, right? All of a sudden you're like, well, I'm going to drink coffee. And then you're scooping the sugar into your coffee exactly. because you're just transferring. Mm-hmm. You're transferring from one issue to this issue, this issue from one thing to another. And, uh, and that takes some, some work too, to recognize, cause you're going to do it because change is hard. Your body is like, no, don't change. We love the sugar. Right. And so your body and the people around you who also do that thing. Yes. Because it's comfort in being surrounded by misery. <laughs> <laughs> you said company, it. sorry. Misery company. Yeah. So, you know, um, and then when you start to recognize, okay, this, I'm, I've, I've got this down. Like I got this sugary drink stuff down. I'm down to drinking black coffee, tea with no sugar, anything and water. That's what I'm drinking. Okay. So now what do I want to go after? What's the next thing that I can do to live a more healthy, full life, mm-hmm. you know? And that's been the journey this year. That's been 2018, you know? And it came out of pain. It came out of physical breaking my hand. But then that unleashed a lot of emotional pain, a lot of things from throughout my, throughout my whole life, from years before that, from, from a lot of things throughout my whole life. And I'm sorting through that, sh- that shit right now. You know, I'm, I'm continuing to sort through that shit because it's hard. That's what's going on, though. That's Um, what's going on. Yeah. So a big part of, you know, me getting, trying to get healthier, trying to to work myself more at the gym and change my diet up has also been, you know, I I said it's about like physically wanting to reconnect and get back to what I lost at some point along the way. But that's not even true because, you know, I would, I would also say in my twenties that I was, I was skinny fat, you know, I was skinny. I was like, skin and bones when we, when we went to Italy, there's pictures of me and I'm like, God, I was skinny. Um, Oh, not me. That's just when I started beefing up. (laughs) But, uh, but I wasn't necessarily like in a great healthy place either. And so, so actually when I, when I've said over the past, you know, couple months, like, Oh, I'm trying to get back to where I was before. That's not even actually true. I'm trying to be better than I ever was. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes so much fucking sense to me because I feel like like I, there are parallels to your transformational journey, your accidental, slightly <laughs> transformational journey and, and mine as well. Because like, I feel like having a great illness or a great injury or any combination of those or accident or whatever, something traumatic that makes 
you stop because your body is telling you you can't go on. You mm-hmm. can't go on in this condition. You can't go on with this pain. You can't go on with this. You have to now do something about it. And it seems to me that people who are really checkbox, jump through all the hoops, people like we both were and mm-hmm. have a tendency to be, it, it takes something, a giant stop sign coming up in your life mm-hmm. that is out of your control to be like, all right, you cannot go on being skinny fat. You cannot go on being successful but unfulfilled. You cannot go on checking all the boxes of what you're supposed to do but not really looking at how everything's fitting together. You have to stop. And it seems like a lot of people that I know recently have come to that place, like in our whatever accidents or mishaps, injuries, illnesses, people have more and more people have started to be forced to reevaluate everything. And so for me, I... I I came from a place where I was always really strong and I was really what I considered physically healthy and skilled and it took a lot of my body falling apart in various ways for me to to um really come to the emotional side of my healing which I ha- thought I had like done my whole life but really I hadn't there was a lot of stuff that I just clearly had stored in my body that um I've been dealing with recently and then for me another side of it was that I had been on so many drugs since I was a teenager because before like knowing now what I know now with what I know now I can look back and because I've done all this work because I've been forced to I realized that everything that I was dealing with as far as like negative emotions or what people would consider depression, anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress, whatever, whatever you want to label it as, troubling behaviors and feelings and emotions and relationships. Obviously, that's how they manifest. So like looking at all that shit show for me, From this perspective, I'm like, oh, well, clearly all this traumatic stuff that happened throughout my entire life added up to this. And all of the being on various drugs that were either um, used to self-medicate myself or given to me by all these doctors and people who said that they loved me and wanted the best for me, they were all clogging up my system and they clogged up my body for a good from when I was like 18 till, till like mid thirties in one form or another. And finally I found myself 30 pounds overweight and everyone was like, Oh Lord, you're so cute. It doesn't matter. And I was like, is no one listening to me about the (laughs) fact that I haven't pooped in two years about the fact that I'm five foot two and that I shouldn't weigh as much as I weigh right now. I don't care if you think I'm cute. I'm not trying to look cute for you. I'm trying to feel like a person who doesn't feel like a zombie and like I have a beach ball inside of me all the time and a person who poops because I'm supposed to. And I had to like for myself go into that and be like, okay, I'm juicing. I'm eating everything right. I'm doing yoga. I'm healthy in all these ways. And I'm still like filled with toxins for some reason. Why? Yeah. I had to systematically and... Maybe this is where the deconstruction, like, for... 
actor training or education in any form comes from. Like, you have to take things out of the equation in order to realize what the baseline is a lot of time. And so I just went on this mission to detox myself from all drugs and like as many chemicals as I possibly could, which is a lot. If you start paying attention to those things that we poison ourselves with as far as like personal care products and food. Yeah. Um, it became my mission and I, and I didn't, it took years. It was a journey that for me took a few years and I lost the weight and I started pooping <laughs> after I eat. Like, it's amazing. I'm like, I'll eat and then poop will come out later. Like not even that it's long the, it's later. The it's things, like, you know. You have no idea, Michael. Poor anyone that ever had to be on tour with me on the road. It's just like, oh, my God. She starts talking the second she wakes up, and all she talks about is how long it's been since she has last pooped. Just so you all know, that's all you're going to hear. But after, like, I reset the whole, like, okay, get all the poisons out, then I started being able to look at what do I want to add back in. Mm. And that Mm -hmm. also has taken years. And now I realize that, oh, okay. So if we kind of just look all look at like our lives through this lens of like what traumas have our bodies and our like minds gone through, how do we get those trapped energies or negative whatever out? And I think that would solve a lot of things for a lot of people. Yeah. I think what's also very hard is that change is an inevitability. Um, and change is also hard. Like the world is constantly changing and change is pretty much always met with resistance in some way, some form, you know, your body operates that way, right? When you start working out, uh, and you change your diet and you shift, shift around, you know, the, the number of calories you're putting in the number of calories that you're burning at first, your body's like, Whoa, and boom, you lose all of this weight. But then your body figures out, oh, change is happening and it starts resisting it and it starts, you have to change, you have to change up what you're doing because if you keep doing the same workout and you keep doing, eating the exact same number of calories, your body adjusts. Nature works that way. Nature is constantly like change is constantly happening and then the world's kind of working against change, you know, Uh, along with that though, is that, you know, we're always changing mentally and emotionally as well. But there's also this tendency, and I think that this is one of the downsides also to social media. There's this tendency to lock you into who you've been. Oh, I know. <laughs> right? And it's very difficult because who I am today, who I am right now in this moment, has been changed by the conversation that we're having. You know? It doesn't matter yeah. if it's radical, huge, dynamic changes or if it's little changes, you know? Um, but we're constantly changing. The The person that I was the day before I broke my hand on January 20th. So the person that I was on January 19th and January 21st, radically different, radically different person, right? Uh, but as you're changing, especially when you're doing, if, if, if people are like physically changing who they are um, through, you know, diet and exercise, but we're, we're also working on ourselves internally, which is not as visible all the time. But as those changes are happening, everybody around you is going, no, 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 don't, don't change. Don't change. Don't change. 
you know, or, you know, it's like, wow, you, you know, you look really great. You know, it's, people don't know how to respond to change because change is hard. They'll say that you look really great and then they'll like sound like they don't think it's great. (laughs) Because change is hard and it's scary. And, and, and somebody looks at that and goes, well, if this person's changing, am I changing? How am I changing? I'm not thinking about how I'm changing. Right. Even though we're literally changing every single day. And what's also hard about change is, you know, if I had any idea what the state of the acting business would be today, and I'm talking about the kind of contracts that our union's offering up and things like that. I'm not talking about, you know, oh, it's hard to be an actor. It's always been hard to be an actor. Right. I, I went into it knowing that it was hard to be an actor. Mm-hmm. But I also went into it at a time when you could book a national commercial and make $100,000 and feed a family. Mm -hmm. And today, you know, I have a friend that did 10 spots for a major, I won't, I don't know what DNRs were signed or not signed, but, um, but he did 10 commercial spots for a major product that I, if I said the name of the product, you'd be like, oh yeah, I know that. Not, not obscure at all. And made $10,000, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because it's all diluted now. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter. You can get anybody to do anything at this point. Yeah. And if I knew that, if I was able to go back and talk to 18-year-old me, I would just say, like, no, no, no. Don't, Don't do, do it. it. Do not because not. it's hard, but because the way the business looks today isn't going to be that way down the road. It's going to change. But change is an inevitability, and you can't go back and tell 18-year-old you what's going to happen down the road because you have no idea what's going to happen. Just like we right now have no idea what it's going to be like 20 years from now. It could be, it could be wonderful. Like th- Things could totally reverse, and it could be like, oh, crap, get back in the game because there's money to be made. Well, and right? maybe we can, and maybe it'll be that easy. But I think that like if we're talking about evolution, which it, we really are talking about evolution, mm-hmm. like change and you know it's constant but there's balance and it goes back and forth but it's it, there is a movement a momentum toward a general um way that it's going a general direction that it's going in that in that hopefully is forward in terms of like things will be better yeah in general but well the other thing that the other thing along with this oh. kind of change too is What's, what makes you happy changes as well. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is really difficult because I, I think I said earlier, right? I set this goal when I was a little kid. I'm going to be on a primetime TV show. That's going to make me happy making that goal happen. And I got out of grad school and I, and I got back from doing a show in Florida, that show Fly, and I focused in on I'm going to land a primetime TV show. I auditioned like 16 times for the show Blue Bloods. I auditioned for just everything that there's a show taping in New York. I pretty much went in for, and I did not book anything. And I was like, okay, I must be a terrible actor. And then I get feedback that I'm like, no, 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 no. The fact that they keep calling you is the victory. And I'm like, that's great. But I'm not getting my goal, which is to actually tape the damn show. Right. right? So I kept going, kept going, kept going. And uh, this year, I got called in for the sixth time by an office for a show. And I remember the day it was, I was, I was out of the cast, but I was still in um, the plastic uh, sling that they put you into that's removable. Uh 
and uh, I was walking to this audition in February, and it was freezing out. And I'd been in for so many of these auditions, and none of them booked, and I was done. I was done. It was so cold. It was like the coldest day of the year. You know, my hand hurt. I was like, what am I doing? I get to that audition. I had to go to the bathroom. I remember I had to go to the bathroom and I walked in expecting there to be like a waiting room full of people. And the one time there's. Oh, and they're like, we're ready for you. Yeah. I walk in and they're like, oh, we can take you right away. The one time when there's like not 15 people waiting. And so I go in the back and I'm the whole time just like, I need to pee. You know, and I, a lot of these auditions that I'd gone in for were like one or two liners that, you know, I like rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And this was one of the bigger things that I'd gone in for. There were speeches. And I just was like, I'm not memorizing this. Oh, thank God. I was like, I don't, I, I'm going to read it. I don't care. You know? Um, and I did care though. That's the thing. Like there's two levels. There's well, the, there's care. the frustrated, there's the frustrated, I don't care. But then there's the underlying, like, no, I really care about this, you know? Um, but at the time, the frustrated, it's cold outside, I have to pee voice was the louder voice in my head, which is probably gave me like the best audition I've ever given. Yeah. You know, because I just did it. I just mm-hmm. did it. And I remember I had a beard at the time and the casting director was like, are you willing to shave? And in my head, I'm like, you've asked me this so many times. And the answer is always yes. And then they're like, are you available for the dates of filming? And I was like, you've asked me this so many times. And the answer is always yes. Still, yes. Um, and then I like got out and went to the bathroom and was like, oh, and I was like, well, there's another not going to book experience. And then a few days later, my manager called and was like, oh, by the way, you booked this show. And I was like, holy crap. It took me so much longer than I thought it was going to do to reach this goal. So then I went and I filmed the episode. and I had. It was a, it was a real, it was a lot of fun. I, um, I mean, it's aired so I can say what it is. It was, um, the blacklist and I played, a, a SWAT commander, you know, but here you are, you like, learn. did you have large weapons? I did. Okay. And that's what I was just going to say. Oh, are we allowed to say large weapons? I think we are. Anymore? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, you go to set and you have like memorized all your lines. And I, like I said, I had, um. You know, I, I mean, I didn't have like, it was not like Shakespearean proportions or anything, but, um, I definitely had a lot to say. It wasn't one line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had like a couple little speeches. I was kind of giving like the sit rep, uh, of the episode, you know, and, uh, and you've got your lines down and you sit there and you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. And, you wait, and then you finally get to set and they strap so much gear on you and all this stuff and you're outside and it's raining, you know, and, uh, there's no rehearsals for TV. It's just kind of, you do it. And right before they call action, the script supervisor comes over and goes, Oh, actually like, we're going to change a whole bunch of stuff here. And she like, do, 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 do changes stuff and walks away. Literally just like says all that walks away. And I look and I see the two stars of the show and they're just like, Oh God gosh darn this is gonna be like really bad because <laughs> i just like it went out of my head i was like oh no and they call action and i was like what just happened uh <laughs> i literally they called action and i literally went uh <laughs> uh <laughs> because and I, I i had my i had my shit down 
and then I, I didn't. I can attest um, to the fact that your mind is like a supercomputer that never forgets lines or what you're supposed to be doing as an actor. Like, I can confirm that and that you have saved my crashing and burning <laughs> ass on at least one occasion. But when you're in that situation and there's so many elements thrown at you and there's 15 million extras around and you're on a mark and there's three cameras and you're looking and you've and never done this before. Changing. And you've never done this before. I mean, I'd, I'd worked on soap operas a lot. So I've been on a lot of TV sets. I've been on some movie sets. So it's not that I haven't been on sets before, but also this was my primetime TV goal that I set when I was a little kid happening in real life. Uh, so I had my, uh, moment and then I pulled it together <laughs> and, uh, we ended up doing five takes. Okay. So, uh, we did three wide and then two pushed up close. I'm sitting there the whole time thinking that I'm the worst person that's ever worked on a television set. I'm, I'm just like I'm the worst TV actor there's ever been, you know, because that's what we do. We start to like feed that narrative and we're like, oh my God, I bumbled all my lines. Like, that's it. I'm, I'm terrible, you know? And then, uh, after we, we shot those scenes, um, one of the guys that I'd become friends, friendly with on the shoot, at least, um, not friends with now, but you know, oh, when no. you're, yeah, when you're thrown in together, you become friends. Shoot, like seems like it could be friends for life. And then but it's just for those two days. Exactly. Um, but he was a, the regular stand in for one of the leads. And, uh, and he pulled me aside and he was like, wow, great job. You did that in like five takes. You were in and out in like 15 minutes. And I'm sitting there in my head thinking, I ruined, I was the worst actor ever. This director thinks, what did I do hiring this guy? Everybody on set is like, this guy's terrible because we, we create this narrative and we start to feed it and it fuel it and whatever. And in reality, like I took a moment and I stopped and I was like, wait a minute. So I'm sitting there and I think to myself, wait a minute. These camera guys are completely unaware of anything I just said. All they were thinking about, because I've, I've, I've run cameras too. All they were thinking about is their shot. Mm -hmm. They aren't even paying attention to what I'm saying. They're worried about the light and the angle, and they're, they're worried about the co composition, making sure that they keep the actor in frame and everything. You know, probably the only person who was even aware that I was talking was the sound guy. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't even probably aware of whether or not I was saying the right lines. The script supervisor was maybe the only person and the director that were even paying attention to what I was or was not saying during that experience. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we do that. We feed all of these things into our head and like, uh, and it's all based on like that idea of happiness. That's what it was all based on. It was this idea of like, uh, this is, this is such a big thing. It's, it's going back to like when I decided I was going to go to grad school and grad school was going to be this thing. So that I did the same thing going on this set. It's, well, it was even worse because it, it had been worked up since I was, you know, 10 years old. Right. So well, then I stopped and, and breathed. You know, and we still had more stuff to film, but like my lines were done, but I was in more scenes. We got to like storm the house and do all oh. the stuff. And I breathed and this, you know, this guy paid me a, a nice compliment and I just was like, yeah, you did do a good job. And then he was like, oh, there was a guy like here last night. They did 20 takes of his scene. And I was like, oh, thank God. I was, <laughs> you know, I was feeling like so bad just because I didn't know. I didn't know what else to think. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I pressurized it so much, here's you know. Yes, I do know. I do know because I, like you, had gotten so caught up in the checking off the boxes goals that I didn't realize, like I know now, that 
that's not the goal. The goal is how you do it. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what I was trying to articulate earlier about the evolution thing. Like, perhaps we're, as a culture, realizing from people, people who have done everything to add up to, quote, unquote, the top of their game, not succeeding is maybe showing us that we're not evolving to accomplishing more things and better things. We're evolving to learning how to do things and how to be happy. The ways, the foundational elements of as a human being, how do we go about being healthy and happy? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of us are very much scratching on figuring out right now and that is very radically different because the world we were born into was here's what you do. Here's what you do for success. And these are the boxes you check off. Go. It was like a scavenger hunt. Yeah. And now all these kids are coming back as like 30, 40 year olds. Like, Hey, we checked off all the boxes and we didn't get shit. Yeah. You know? And so now. Do I get to turn this in and get a prize? (laughs) There are no more prizes. All the prizes (laughs) have burned down in that building over there. Do you see that? So yeah, maybe we're like, okay, Well, that didn't work. And it did work in some ways. Like we, I think both recognize that we had a lot of incredible experiences. We also recognize that we understood shit would be hard and, and we were sacrificing to go on this path that we're passionate about. And now like, oh, well, that maybe wasn't the ultimate. Maybe the ultimate is like, we're still just trying to figure out how do we even go about. I, it's just. I suspect that all the things that go into being a good actor, artist, blah, 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 is what goes into being a good human. Yeah. And I also like, like. so, so I think that like, you know, part of why I wanted to bring this up too was like this idea of like, what do you hang your sense of happiness on? I also don't want to take away from the fact though, that like when I got into costume and I was sitting in my trailer, like it was complete and utter joy for several minutes of me just like, this is amazing. This is what I always wanted to do and I'm doing it and that so 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 there was the stress and anxiety of the actual like moment of shooting the first scene because I hadn't done yeah, it before that's you know just part of it um and and I want to be better at writing the narrative of in that moment of just being like no this is okay this is what it is hmm. and that's what I'm working towards but also you know I haven't watched the episode still <laughs> and it's uh it aired in May and a lot of people have kind of given me some grief about it. And I, I said, I was what like, well, about not watching it yeah, or just about it, about not watching it. Um, and I said, you know, it wasn't about that though. Like I did it. I did the goal. The goal was, the goal wasn't to watch myself on television. The goal was to do the to job be there. Yeah. And I did it. So watching it is almost sort of like, I'm sure at some point I'll see it, you know, um, if nothing else, then to get the clip. So I have it to, show to somebody if they ever want to see it or whatever so that I have it but it's it's it it became very low priority like the actual act of like watching it it's like whatever like and that's again connected to that idea of like well you know does that have anything to do with the sense of happiness or joy that I got out of the experience no because the moment for me was like putting on you know, well, the, moment the SWAT for you suit was, for the first time. You being lived like, it. Yeah. You experienced yeah. it. You were there and you were present and you maybe weren't present the whole time, but you knew enough and had practiced enough to be able to bring yourself back from like spinning into future and past anxieties and stuff. <laughs> exactly. Good job. Yeah. But, but then, you know, where I'm at now is a place of 
a daily practice of presence, you know, where I, you know, I like to run at the reservoir in Central Park. So I'll go there and it's so easy to slip into the check mark when you run that, right? Mm -hmm. You like see the little, like, I don't know, those little buildings that are around. There's like what they're halfway points and stuff. And it's so easy to kind of get no place of like, okay, I'm going to get to that halfway point. And then like that tree I know is like a quarter of that way and this and that. I'm just trying to get to there. And, and it does take some conscious work and effort to say, just sit in this. Like you get to live in 2018. You get to walk to Central Park in New York on a nice, clear, beautiful day. And you get to just run for 15 minutes or a half hour or however long you decide to go run for. And you know that that phase of running that hurts? Like, you know, like five minutes in where your chest is just like hurting. Oh, well, and... I don't run. So like all of it hurts <laughs> to me. Well, uh, but yeah, but there's that like of cardio, there's that moment that you have to kind of get through that, like 30 seconds of just like, oh, this really sucks. Burning lungs. Yeah. Okay. And then as you would your body like adjust, then all of a sudden you like get into your groove and then you can go for like, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes without really feeling that, oh God, maybe I'm, maybe it's time for me to stop, you know? That's a, that's a thing too. Is like, can you, can you have such a sense of presence that even that you're able to sit in? And that's, that's the thing that is like, can you get to that? Can you have the presence to sit in the painful moments too? And just say, okay, this is where I'm at right now. This is what I'm in right now. And that's okay. And I'm going to be in it. Because I think that it's the tendency is to want to shove it down, shove it down. And then you keep shoving shit down until you break your hand and it all comes out whether you like it to or not, you know? Exactly. And that's what you were talking about. The stop sign coming up that says you have to deal. Yeah. You have to deal with this shit. You can't keep shoving it down. I think that that's, but you that's know, how we got here. We got yeah. here as a culture by being taught that one, emotions are bad, period. Emotions are bad. Not true. That's 100% not true. They're not bad and they're not good yeah. their information their data their energy in motion they are information coming to us so that we know what is going on and how to process what is going on and i think coming from a place where that was just automatically bad so many people went to so many different lengths of coping and repressing and forgetting and not dealing with and shoving shit down that now we are living in the world we're living in and mm -hmm. Fortunately, there seem to be a lot of people who have come to a place of like, okay, total reevaluation. And that's great. But um, we, I feel like, are at just so at the beginning of this that like, I feel like people who I have always looked up to as like perfectly capable and inspirational and uh, all of these things, we're all kind of like looking around at each other like, this is hard. <laughs> this yeah. is hard because we're figuring something out that like, it seems like people have not figured out before even though we're bringing in bits of stuff that from like ages ago that we forgot along the way it's in a new context where technology is this crazy thing and now like ah but i mean i feel like it's like such an idiot saying this because of my you know here i have my programming telling myself like laura you're not allowed to be optimistic like i have my voice in my head that narrates 
shit as you are not good enough. You're a failure and you're supposed to be miserable and you're not allowed to be happy. And you always have to be the crabby person that everyone can easily blame on like whatever is wrong in the situation. Because that was like one of my ways that I like learned to navigate the world is like, oh, I'll just like take all of the responsibility for everything that goes wrong on myself. In that way, I don't know. I feel like it was maybe like a a mechanism of like trying to feel more in control, but really it made me feel more out of control. So there's, there's who we feel like we are in the world or what we think we are in the world. Um, what we think we actually are. There's what we think we project or who we think we look like we are to other people. Right. And the reality is that everybody's in that same place. So, so, so often we think like, oh, like these people are like thinking about us or talking about us. But the, the truth is that everybody is actually doing the same thing. They're all, everybody's kind of sitting there going like, oh my God, everybody's looking at me. Everybody's judging me. Everybody's this, everybody's that. And then they put on this air of confidence and then that makes the people around them go like, oh, they're judging me. They're, and it's just this circle that goes around and around. In it just loops around. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and that's something also that I think as you get older, starts to become a challenge that gets presented to you is the reality that the world does not rotate around you and your existence mm. and your hopes and your dreams and all of the people around you do not think about you all the time. Uh, but that's great. That should be a great relief to us. It should, but it, it creates and can feed into a sense of loneliness, right? And this is something I've been thinking about a lot um, lately. Breaking your hand uh, really can hit, uh, make you lonely <laughs> because you can't go out and do stuff. And then also becoming healthy can make you kind of lonely because all of a sudden you're not drinking alcohol. So you go out to the bar a few times and get uh, soda water and that's not a whole lot of fun, you know? And there's nothing to eat because everything is Junk not food. on the menu for you. And uh, the result ends up being that you go, okay, well, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to work. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to make something healthy. And then I'll, you know, hang out at home with the pups, you know, and then I'll do it all again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, which as a baseline for an existence sounds great to me, but, but then you do need to add other things in there. So there's, so it, it, it created those, these experiences of 2018 have created in me, uh, I like to think about things. I'm a thinker. Um, I like to think about uh, pontificate. And uh, I really got interested in the idea of what is the difference between being lonely and being alone? Because I think that there is a lot of power in being alone. I think that making the choice that I'm going to go on a vacation, I'm going to go by myself and go to New Orleans and spend a weekend alone. And it's a choice that I'm making can be very satisfying and can really feed your soul. Oh, absolutely. Solitude. So being alone isn't necessarily something that has to be connected to emotions that are sad or depressed or anything like that. Totally agree. But when being alone does combine with that, then you create, you, you find yourself in this place of loneliness. And I never felt loneliness in my life until this year. 
which I can only say because this year was the first year that I ever felt it. And I was like, oh, if I ever thought, I never really thought that I was lonely before, but even if I ever did, the feeling of the world coming in around you because you're so alone and you don't want to be is unlike anything I have ever experienced. Mm -hmm. And I've this year felt it for the first time where I've been sitting here and I'm in New York city surrounded by millions of people. I don't know how many people live in New York, but a lot (laughs) something million, a lot of people, right? There are people around you constantly. And I've never felt this kind of loneliness. And I remember through my twenties, like living in New York city and hearing people talk about that. And I always, I never discredited it. I discredited that idea. I never thought like, oh, that's not true. You, 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 you could never be lonely in New York. I always was like, no, I, a lot of people say that, but it's not my experience. And this year it became my experience. And this year, all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow. Like a lot of the people I really care about have moved away or moved into a different phase of their life. And they still care about me and I still care about them. And I still have this tribe of wonderful people in my life, but it's different. It's changed. And I think that, uh, you know, emotionally, (laughs) my body was fighting that change and confronting this sense of loneliness, you know, and then you're sitting there and you're going, okay, well, what am I supposed to do now? Am I supposed to make and curate new friends? Am I supposed to be doing something different? I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing because this is new, Mm -hmm. you know? I think you're supposed to be doing all of it. There's like (laughs) reevaluating everything. Like, what do I no longer need? And in some cases that looks like, Whose energy do I no longer need to be around? Um, well, I think also that we're, we're told a false narrative from a very young age that life is always exciting, right? Because we've consumed it in movies and books and music and all of the things that were fed. Um, uh, even, even if you're like more, you know, into athletics and sports, uh, it's always about the, this uh, sense of excitement and, and, and the heightened moments of life. But really, the truth is, is that we, ha- we all have those heightened moments and spread out in between them for everyone is days and days of the mundane, of the ordinary, of, you know, getting up and working and going to the gym and doing the daily life, the daily act of living, you know, and trying to figure out, okay, so how do you balance the mundane aspects of life that are, that are necessary? You would, we would die if every day was exciting. (laughs) Like you would just like, your body would be like, I'm done after like a year of that, you know, (laughs) every day can't be the best day of your life. Right. Uh, we need life to kind of go that way uh so how do you uh accept and enjoy that that's a part of life celebrate it even and stay present in it and not turn that into like the checklist days and i think that's that's the challenge you know because because we love we love the when, when artists and poets and everybody writes about the moment that you see your true love for the first time and those kinds of things, you know, cause that's, that's what you write about. But the reality is that uh, so much of our lives is those days in between. I've been doing it wrong again. 
I haven't been writing about those things. <laughs> Dang it. I'm always doing it wrong. The writing, the being a human. Well, there is no right or wrong. No, there I just know. Well, that's a thing. Brene Brown. <laughs> oh. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me as a guest. Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? Do you have a wrap up? No. Uh... Something How do you weird. end it? Oh, well, I'll just fade out usually when somebody says something stupid like me. <laughs>